Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Thank you for listening to Law Talks. Before you listen in to this episode, we wanted to let you know that this is one of our first attempts at creating the podcast. And as a result, it lacks the audio quality and cohesion that the later episodes have. We've kept it unchanged as the content is invaluable and very much worth a listen. We hope you'll stick around and check out and listen in to our more recent episodes too. Hello and welcome to the eighth episode of Law Talks. In this episode, Ellie is joined by William Hughes, a criminal law specialist with a mixed prosecution and defence practice. In Silk, William is consistently instructed to prosecute and defend in cases of great complexity, including homicide, organised crime, sexual offences and child abuse. Okay, so to start with the first question, what pathway did you take to study law? And then further on in your career, what was the process like to become well, I, I took an unconventional path, I suppose, Ellie. Um, I had a background in science A-levels, and on conclusion of those, I wasn't quite sure what to do with myself. And I had to use my science A-levels, obviously, to get in somewhere. And I, went, I ended up going to Leicester and did a combined degree, uh, which is a little odd, with law and chemistry. And the, the way the... Uh, course worked is that I could um, specialize towards the end of the course and I decided that science wasn't for me and law was slightly more interesting I still at that stage hadn't decided what side of the profession I was going to go into but I got the requisite six course topics qualification and did a little bit extra got my degree and then I decided what am I going to do and I thought my experience at that point 
was insufficient to either go down the solicitor's route or in fact the bar. And so I ended up working for BT in their solicitor's department. And back at that time, uh, they did their own in-house uh, prosecutions. They did their own in-house litigation and they had their own in-house property department. So effectively it was a paralegal for about 18 months. And during the course of that, I went to court and I've never been to court before. And I thought this is quite interesting. And I, they did a couple of trials that were quite interesting. And I thought, oh, this could be for me. Yeah. And so having thought about it, um, at that point in time, so that was sort of mid eighties, in order to come solicitor, you had to apply like three years in advance to the, the uh, do the GDL or whatever the equivalent is now. Um, but for the bar, you could apply a year in advance. So I thought I'll do that instead. So I then did the bar, um, got through that, about a skin of my teeth, I think, and then sort of did the usual searching around for pupils, which people find now is increasingly difficult. It was less so in my day, but nonetheless, not, not, not easy. But I found um, a, a pupillage at Chambers I'm still in, and uh, that was a, ostensibly a criminal stroke, common law set. And then I went from there. So I started off doing mixed practice, but then uh, you know, over the years I've specialised in, in criminal law, both prosecuting and defending, and that's how we find ourselves 32 or so years on. <laughs> oh no, that's interesting, because uh, actually I'm, I'm studying at the moment a science degree at university. Are you? Okay. <laughs> it's nice hearing someone had a similar... I, I personally think it's quite useful to, be a, to have a different discipline. It's a good background to have, quite frankly. That's very good to hear. And um, following on for that, I was wondering, what was the process like to become a silk? Right. Well, um, when I first began as a pupil, they had this system about which I know very little, but there was a lot of rumours where apparently someone would give a candidate the nod. They would still have to apply, uh, but they would give them a nod and usually those people would get through. And if someone had done something to upset somebody, um, a lot of people, if they had their word or if cross someone's path, someone could basically stop them from becoming a silk. And I, I know of people in the old system who perhaps bear a grudge because of it. Wow. And so until the early, two, around 2003, mm. there was a review by the government into the standing of silk and whether or not it was needed. And it was decided that for lots of reasons, it's a, it's a, a kite mark as much as anything else. And it's a good, particularly in the civil chancery commercial world, to have a silk attracting clients from abroad. And of course, in the most difficult of cases, for example, in criminal or family law, you do need an experienced practitioner to deal with it sensitively, knowledgeably and without fear. So what happened in the early 2000s was they had a, an open process where anyone could apply but like many uh, applications these days, it's considered by an independent panel. Uh, you have to, in short, have completed at least 12 cases of note. Okay. Um, you have to be peer reviewed by those who you're in the case with, those who sent the case to you, and more importantly, the judges or tribunals you appeared in front of. So 
if you choose to put a particular case down, mm. you can't pick and choose as to who your referees from it are from it. Um, so if the judge is there you didn't get on with and doesn't like you, sometimes that can adversely affect your application. So I did that and for whatever reason I got the one they gave away that year and uh, I've been now silk for eight years. Well, so it's quite, a, quite an intense process to... to it, it's really hard. I mean, it, it's, it's akin, as you'll be doing now, filling in applications, forms for jobs or whatever, or even filling in ACUS forms or whatever it was a couple of years ago. It's just, it's, it's a similar type of thing yeah. where you, you've got to have a lot of detail, but they want a lot of evidence. So if you say, I did the most brilliant case in the world, it was brilliant because... Mm. You've got to say why it was, and then they'll ask your colleagues who are in the case with you and the judge, was it brilliant or was it easy just trying to big it up? So you do have to have it supported and you have to do cases of gravity and, and so forth. And I always prosecuted and defended, so I, I've had a quite a, a wide range of, um, yeah. uh, of case background to rely upon. Okay, no, that's, that's, that sounds like a very interesting process and I'm assuming one that you have to have been in the career quite a long time before you can apply. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, and as you as you said, um, you specialised in criminal law, both prosecuting and defending. So, yes. in sort of, where's the difference? We a lot of our listeners were interested. The sort of difference between uh, murder and manslaughter, and sort of when you're deciding. To well, well, I suspect if you're um, anyone will have a good idea of what m murder is. It's the unlawful killing by one individual upon another homicide as it's commonly known um and you've got to effectively in in short you've got to have uh, either intent to kill mm -hmm. or intent to commit grievous bodily harm in order to be convicted of murder to putting it very simply uh, but then you have um defenses to murder obviously some defenses are complete um such as self-defense in a, a offense of violence if you acted reasonably and a jury concludes that then you're entitled to a full defense of being acquitted of murder however there are other um aspects to murder which in which the intent isn't complete but nonetheless the killing is unlawful so by way of, of a couple of examples you could have a you could be acting under a, a, a medical um disability so you quite often get individuals who are suffering from schizophrenia or 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 murders or in, uh, diseases of the mind akin to that which provided uh, there are at least two uh, qualified medical practitioners under the mental health act who can confirm yes that individual was so, so suffering and it would be a defense provided the jury conclude that, that they agree then that would be a defence to murder so that they could be convicted by reason of diminished responsibility. Mm. You could also have another defence whereby um, uh, it's one called loss of control, where effectively when the killing took place, there had to be a, a loss of control and there had to be also what's called a qualifying trigger. trigger. And so... An extreme example may be when um, two people in a relationship that breaks down and one finds out that the other's been having another romantic involvement mm 
mm. and it causes that normal person that person to act in a way that they otherwise wouldn't then potentially there is a defense under the coiners and justice act of 2009 but a part of that objective test is whether a person of showing the characteristics of the person committing the killings their sex and age with a normal degree of tolerance and self-restraint and so forth in the circumstances may have re reacted in the same or a similar way so again we have um another example of uh, a potential defense to uh, partial defense to murder and then manslaughter as well um you can be convicted if you are reckless during the course of the killing. So for example, uh, medical practitioners, uh, surgeons and so forth have been convicted of manslaughter because of a negligent act on their part uh, and the patient dies. So they're criminally responsible for the killing but not with the intent to kill them, if you see what I mean. Yeah, no, thank you, that's interesting. That sort of feels weird to explain that you can um, have like a defense to murder in some ways, but... Yes. But, but, but in, in, some, in some cases, it's, t it's totally justified and totally proper. Uh, and I've been involved in cases where the individual concerned was clearly acting under men mental disability and acted in, in a way that most people would consider quite abnormal. Yeah. And the abnormal mind is obviously a factor that can be taken into account by particularly psychiatrists and psychologists who obviously play a very important role in that, that, those type of defences. In the, you were talking about the loss of control situations, would, if that was deemed um, relevant in a case, would, would it have an effect on you know, being acquitted or would it possibly minimise prison? It, it, it provides a partial defence uh, okay. to murder. Um, it, it won't allow them to, to walk free, but there are uh, circumstances where um, it, it can successfully be left to the jury because the judge has to decide whether there's sufficient evidence after hearing all the evidence for that defence to be left to the jury. And um, I was involved in one a few years ago where the judge did leave it to the jury, but um, they didn't find that the defence had been proved because the burden of proof um, uh, for that falls on the defendant to, to show that there was a loss of control, one of the few instances where there is. Um, so it, it can arise, but it's, it's, it's a rare beast, if I put it that way. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, and now slightly, obviously, we researched you before the interview yes. and we've been, you've had very several media appearances, such yes. as Millionaire um, and 10 Steps to Murder. This is it's quite unusual. We haven't had people we've interviewed um, be involved in things like this. So we all know how you got involved and did you enjoy well, that? The case I was just touching on was yeah. that, that it was, it's exactly the same case, but two different um, films were made about it. Um, in short, we had, it, it, that case had everything because we had a, a millionaire many times over who fell in love with a, uh, a lady half his age who had come from a very modest background, um, was working initially as a, a, a lap dancer and a, okay. and, and a burlesque dancer and so forth. And then she moved on into escort work and then ended up being involved with him through that escort work. And uh, he was uh, someone on the edge of the autistic spectrum mm -hmm. and called evidence to that effect as saying that's his defense for diminished responsibility, but it wasn't quite enough, quite frankly. Yeah. And that's what the jury found. And he also, he also relied, relied on loss of control because he was effectively paying this young lady to be exclusive to him. And 
she wasn't being, but neither was he to her. But, you know, there's one rule for one, one rule for the other. Mm-hmm. And he went so far as to put a listening device in, a, in the home in which he let her live in. And she, he heard her either with or in communication with other gentlemen. And he said that set him off and set him on the path to kill her. And he did plan to kill her one way or other. Either, way, either, either he would have him, have her, forgive me, or no one else would. So he was saying hearing that was his, the, trigger, the qualifying trigger in loss of control. But the jury didn't agree, given the degree of planning yeah. and so forth with which he'd been involved. So it's completely premedit- premeditated? So well, that's what they found. Yeah. Okay. Premeditated. And he'd gone to the uh, extraordinary steps of planning every, every little item he was going to use in the murder. He, he made a homemade ligature with which to kill her. He took the body away and um, was, hadn't quite decided what to do with it. But I suspect, mm-hmm. given more time and had he, had the, he not been rumbled, uh, he would have done. Yeah. So um, I can understand how a movie was made out of that case. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got everything. <laughs> yeah, that is, well, that's very interesting. Um, so I actually, because I haven't seen these, how much were you involved in the, the media prints? Oh, so I, I was prosecuting those cases mm-hmm. and they interviewed, I've been interviewed on two occasions in respect of them, one by one TV company, one by another. In the first one, which um, uh, the murderous millionaire, they just interviewed me, and they had a, a couple of talking heads, so people who, you know, uh, what's the name, Trish Goddard, and people like that who had nothing to do with the case, but they were on it, and they had a bit of reconstruction, which was, which was being blood was quite naff. Yeah. And then the second one, which was on Sky Crime, I think it's still on there somewhere, and. Um, that interviewed myself, the defence QC, also the defendant's brother, which mm. is a different aspect to it, yeah. and and that was more factual, and in fact was the far better um, programme in my view. Okay, yeah, no, that. So if if you quite quite often you, I, I've had this with colleagues as well. They are if they're in an interesting case, you often get TV companies coming in and say, "Can we speak to you about it?" and and so forth that's that's how it happens really I've no, I, I didn't know anyone in tv or anything like that no, that's very that's quite exciting was it very soon after um the case or? about a year or so okay. um because I, I thought that there was quite a lot of publicity at the time when it, when it was going on i mean it got on second item on national news so it tend those things tend to attract a, a degree of interest and um yeah it was it was, you know, it was an interesting thing to be involved in no, it's sort of a very different aspect to the probably normal normal dog. Yes, that's right. And as as we've just been talking about a big murder case, do you find it challenging when representing murderers? Like, do you prefer either prosecution or defence? Uh, um, I enjoy being in both. I, I do not enjoy um, the bit, the aftermath, probably post conviction if you're defending. Because I'll give you two extremes. I've had represented one bloke who got 30 years minimum term for wow. his life sentence. And that's, there's not a lot you can say there. And the evidence was overwhelming. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a tricky conversation. And I've done a, a fair number, sadly, of these 
what are known as postcode killings and gang killings. And they're often young men from you know difficult backgrounds, and they end up getting a sentence longer than they've ever lived. So if you have, if you say to a seventeen year old you've got a life sentence with a minimum term of nineteen years, it's it's exceedingly tricky because yeah. as we all know when we grow up our, our memories don't actually kick in till we're about five or six really. Yeah. And so it's only your memories from that time that counts. So if you're seventeen, you, your memory kicks in around the time you're five. You've got twelve years worth of memories effectively, and then you've got nineteen years which you haven't even lived. You can't even imagine it. Yeah. Like the, the mental torture for people in those positions are must be terrible. But by the same token, they've been convicted of killing someone, and usually someone of their own age or thereabouts who won't have the life that they will have. It's it's it's, it's a terrible situation. No, that's very very difficult situation. Yeah, I've never actually thought about obviously after the case, it's the people representing you that then explain your sentence and things like that. So yeah, and and, and obviously some people um, can be less than accommodating. They can be quite aggressive with you because they've lost, and it's an, an understandable reaction. But it can be quite intimidating and frightening. Do you feel like of often when you sort of go into prosecution? Well, I suppose what people are always interested in is in murder cases is obviously like evidence is very ambiguous or like as you said with the... Oh yeah, see. Yeah. Well, well the thing is with most cases, um, I mean I, I've been to see someone very recently in, in custody whose case is going to happen in a couple of months or so and I, I think he's got a defence to murder. But by the same token the evidence if, if interpreted another way will convict him. So it can be ambiguous in that way, but it's it, he's in a better position than some of his co-defendants who perpetrated the killing physically. Um, it's a question whether or not he was a party to it, which makes it intellectually more interesting, but it's actually just as worrying from a human point of view yeah. when you've got someone's life in your hands. No, it's a big responsibility, I suppose, to put it, put it simply. Yeah. Um, and you, you mentioned earlier, obviously you mentioned um, like some people who are being prosecuted and had schizophrenia and stuff. Do you feel that yes. is is mental health that does that have a big play in cases or? Quite often, I, I mean, I can only give you from from experience. I think it's probably the best way to deal with it. I have represented um, a young man who committed a killing. He, he didn't dispute he did a killing and. Uh, Nine-tenths of the time I met him, he was as um, clear-headed as you and I are speaking now. Uh, but then there was clearly a side to him, usually when he'd smoked cannabis or, or something like that, that caused him to flip. And this, this guy flipped and he killed this poor man in a rather ghastly way. And it was quite a difficult case to conduct forensically because there were seven, seven psychiatrists who gave evidence okay. and they were split effectively as to whether or not uh, he was suffering under a mental um, disability at the time of the killing or whether it was something else but not sufficient to satisfy the um, defence and in fact the jury concluded that he didn't act under a mental disability at the time okay. and so that that was a tricky one but then I've also been involved um, with an appeal in relation to a lady who um, was convicted of murder of her partner, 
that she um, ran the, effectively the coercive control thing, which has become quite prevalent and quite a, uh, a strong defence to run for people in close relationships. And the Court of Appeal thought that there was something in that argument, but ordered a retrial. And in fact, the jury heard all that again. I wasn't involved in the retrial for various reasons. Um, and they've convicted her again of murder. Okay. So it can work, and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, no, thank you. That's a very interesting perspective. Um, and I was just going to ask, just because you mentioned um, about the the convicted who was on cannabis, does you know substance abuse have a big effect usually in cases? Uh, it, it, it can do, and obviously um, the, the more serious the drug uh, in nature, class A drugs particularly, it can have a major effect on it. But self-induced intoxication isn't a defence in law, but in this particular instance, what um, the interesting thing about the defendant was that he had an underlying condition, mm. a sort of personality disorder, which in itself potentially was capable of amounting to a, uh, a medical uh, disability, but three of the psychiatrists, and particularly the most eminent one, took the view that his use of cannabis had exaggerated it and because of that it was a partially a self-induced medical condition and so he took the view the defense wasn't open to him and the jury agreed with it and in part because of the the violent nature of the attack i suspect that may have influenced the jury as well okay that's interesting so there's almost two parts in that case then there are yeah, yeah it was it was quite a, a difficult case forensically that yeah, and and sort of slightly moving away now from murder cases. Do you are you involved? I think with lots of drug related cases. I I used to do a lot of drug related cases, um, a bit of both, defending and prosecuting. But the more complex uh, and more organised of the drug cases, I tended to prosecute those, okay. and they tended to be organised gangs bringing in large quantities of usually class A drugs from abroad by various methods and having a, a network of individuals to help facilitate that. And um, obviously some of the people who are involved in such thing, given the money can be, that can be made, are, are very serious criminals indeed. Yeah. And so there is an aspect to it where you can see there's an underlying menace yeah. for lots of reasons. And people who do become involved in that tend to be some of the more notorious criminals in our society. No, that's very interesting. Yeah, it's a big profile. Yeah, um, and consequently the sentences for those type of people can be pretty draconian. Um, the, I've, I noticed one of the questions you wanted was this, how do the sentences differ? Well, yeah. it depends on what the drug is, purity of the drug, and the quantity of the drug. So people who ship in you know, tens of, uh, of kilograms of class A drugs in, with high purity into the UK can expect very high sentences, you know, 25 years plus. And the judges all have guidelines as to where a particular case falls. And that really does um, dictate whether or not someone wants to take a plea or someone wants to fight it. But the, end, the other end of the scale, historically, I always used to defend drug mules, certainly in my younger days. And there'd be people from very, quite often impoverished backgrounds abroad who were offered what we would consider be a pittance of money, but a great deal to them to, to swap.
swallow drugs and bring in drugs for which the sentences would be draconian and, and very harsh. And in fact, over the, in some courts that dealt with particularly flights into Heathrow, there'd be so many of the case studies involved with it that they'd basically adopt their own sentencing policy. If people pleaded not pleaded guilty, they'd give them a big discount. Um, if they're not guilty, then they'd get the full whack. And it, and it did concentrate the minds a bit for many people. Yeah, wow, that's that's very interesting. So it's almost it's almost sort of like trying to push people to pleading. Well, it, it could do, but then if it's a very tricky um, defence to run if you've swallowed drugs. So you've either, you've obviously clearly done it knowing what you're doing. Yeah, you've done it for a reason. So you either run duress as a defence or saying I didn't know what I, I thought I was swallowing diamonds or something like that. Some people have tried to do. Um, but some of them, what, what, what you tend to find with most people who are remanded into custody prior to trial, they tend to talk to people who are in the same position as them and find out what the sentences are and then make their own decision up from that. So you do get a sort of network of informed decision making. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose, I'm, it obviously, drug cases have very big impacts, but it almost feels strange that the sentences are, you know, the same sort of length as a murder case or possibly longer. Yeah, obviously, but that's, for murder cases, it's a lifetime with a minimum term. So they would, you know, if someone gets 30 years, they would serve 30 years. Yeah, okay. Well, as opposed to, say, somebody gets 25 years for a drug-related offence, they'd serve, in theory, two-thirds. There was a time they'd serve half, but each government has tended to get more harsh on it. Okay. Um, and obviously the prison system themselves will have their own way of whether they release people early or let them go on weekend visits and so forth. But that's perhaps a different aspect that we are veering off into. Another end. Yeah, that's very interesting. It's an interesting perspective. Um, now this is possibly slightly different, a different area as well, yep. because obviously, as you said, you specialising in criminal law. There's quite a lot of advice, you know, people who are interested in law that criminal law is quite early on as a junior barrister it's there's quite a lot of financial insecurity and the workload is very high and i was just wondering how did you find your experience and if you had any advice well I, i'm not going to dissuade anything anyone from doing it because it is probably um the most one of the most rewarding aspects of the legal system in this country uh, not financially you know let's make it clear uh, you can make a comfortable living if you get to a certain level but there are very few who make really big bucks um, on the criminal side of things, and that's unless if you're representing you know, privately paying fraudsters or um, celebrities charged with historic sex offences and that type of thing. So they're the ones that tend to pay well. But at, starting at the bottom, the, um, the payments are not great and are exceedingly modest. And, you know, we all know the reality these days. If everyone, you're going through the student experience now, you don't have to tell me what you're outgoings are all your costs are but we all know yeah. and then you know people are coming to start off with thousands and thousands of pounds worth of debt which is no great way to start any sort of working life and there was a time um sadly i missed it when i'm, I'm told you know the, the money was very very good okay. so even starting off but you know it's, it's the party to which you're never invited so you, you know you couldn't go and as any other people say i would not discourage anyone from actually doing it but you know you've got to go in with your eyes open yeah. and I'll give you a, an example when I started I was one of six pupils 
we now do um, usually a minimum of two okay. and occasionally we might offer three but that's it and you know we have to fund the pupil so it comes out of everyone's pocket of being self-employed so the awards aren't as great for example if, as if you're in a commercial set where you get quite a reasonable amount of money probably would clear any student that you've got and then the financial rewards will get greater so publicly funded work and i include family work in that as well is if you want job satisfaction you probably get it more than people who do um extensive contracts and so forth and commercial work but then their financial rewards would be substantial so it's it's uh, the swing and roundabout and i never know which one's the good one but I, I would as i say i would i wouldn't discourage anyone from doing it but a few general tips most sets now will look for a minimum of two one they will look for requisite experience so that's uh, two or three other many pupillages or placements at a, a solicitor's firm or in some instances going to the states and working on death row inmates and things like that quite a lot of people tend to do that or something of interest but that's not the be all and end all because from my point of view if you're dealing with members of the public you've got to be able to get on with them yeah. so being an academic star but not particularly outgoing and not having a good personality to, to deal with people isn't going to help you okay. so you i always look at what people's personal qualifications are what what else do they do you know do they i don't know play sport or do they play music or, or do something that's got nothing to do with law but nonetheless gives them something else to their personality so that so it's always worth chucking all that in and however crass it may appear and have some someone may think oh, i don't think anyone will be interested in that someone might yeah you know if it adds to the personality and adds to the individual then all well and good well, thank you that's very helpful advice and i suppose it's good to know i mean as you've been talking about these cases it's very clear that working in the criminal speciality is very interesting cases and lots of yeah it, it can be some of it can be exceedingly dull so, you know, long frauds are not sexy or anything like that. They're just um, a hard grind. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of material sometimes to get your head around. But, you know, you've got to try and do it. And reconciling thousands and thousands of pages of documents is quite difficult. And it's really hard to remember where you've seen something, for example. I've seen it's all, you know, going back to something you'd seen three or four weeks beforehand is quite hard if you can't remember where it was. Yeah, I can imagine. So that's not fun, but you know, simple facts of a killing are far easier to digest and make a far more appealing television programme, for example. Thank you very much. Yeah, I know that's very helpful advice about people interested in criminal, going into the criminal speciality. Yep. And yeah, also I suppose there's like similarities with family law and... Yes, exactly. So publicly funded work, as I say, go in with your eyes open. It's probably the best rewarded on a personal level but not on a financial level but if you want to make the big bucks well go and work at a city law firm or some point or an american firm or something like that and um prepare not to have any private life or anything like that but a, but a big bank balance so weigh it all up um and just just i don't know if that's something that you know much about what you're saying with american law firms is it very easy to switch between working in the uk to the us well, I, 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 I've never done it, but I know people who have. Um, 
obviously that will involve them having a qualification with the local bar association, so in New York or Washington or whatever, um, or in California or whatever like that. But then you'll then need to then practice there as well. Um, but I, as I say, I'm, I'm probably not the best person to ask for that because I've not really done it. Well, I haven't done it. Yeah, no, that's no, but I mean, and did you? As it is, it common? We've heard from a lot of people that um, as you sort of become more experienced, the cases in criminal law get a lot more interesting and bigger and. They get they get more serious, okay. certainly do, and 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 the stakes for everyone are substantially increased. And let's be realistic: each case is important to the individuals whom it involves. So, some you know, someone of a meticulous character who's been accused of shoplifting—that's mm. the most important thing in their world to clear their name. In the same way that someone's accused of murder. Obviously, for, for the obvious, for the, the, the reasons that we've just spoken about, clearing their name or getting them off is going to be tantamount. That's the end of their life, otherwise. But this, the other token could be this, you know, someone caught stealing from a shop. That could be the end of their professional life or, or whatever. So it's, everything's of important. And we also get crossover by doing um, regulatory work, by representing people within the profession. So I've historically represented police officers and people within the medical profession within their own discipline procedures and I, a lot of my colleagues have done court martials and so forth and it's obviously has a, a different impact but nonetheless an important effect on the individual concerned. Hey, thank you thank you very much that's a it's been a really interesting perspective and very helpful advice into yes. criminal law. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.